Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at common roadblocks to innovation and how to overcome them. Why looking in the rearview mirror is more important to innovating successfully than being able to see the future. Getting beyond the age bias and why 50 is the new 30. And why less is sometimes more when it comes to innovation in the business world. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Tom Agan. Tom is managing partner and co-founder of Rivia, a global innovation and brand consultancy that helps organizations think bigger, be bolder, and deliver better results. Tom has worked with companies like Procter & Gamble, Cisco, GE, Kraft, UBS, and Toyota, just to name a few. Prior to Rivia, Tom was Senior Vice President and Managing Director at the Nielsen Company, where he was instrumental in releasing an innovation best practices study with first-of-its-kind insights. Tom writes regularly on innovation for outlets like the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Hey, well, it's great to be here. Thank you. All right, so let's let's kick things off today talking about the innovation study you conducted at Nielsen. Can you give listeners some background on the study and a few of its key findings? Sure, absolutely. Well, not surprisingly, people are very interested in the topic of innovation, and everybody wants to know how they can do it better. So facing all these questions, it became pretty clear we had to come up with some answers. So what we did was I had Nielsen people, objective observers, look at what was going on at their clients, document it, not evaluate it, and then we compared it to the percent of revenue from new products. And so as a result, we're able to come up with insights that were based on data in a way that's never been done before and provide a much more objective uh, perspective. Okay, great. And, and what kinds of companies were you surveying? Uh, this was consumer packaged good companies. So companies like Kraft, uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever. And we looked at all the major ones operating in the United States. So it was about 30 companies in all. So we had a perspective across the entire industry. Okay, great. And what were some of some of the findings that really stood out to you? There's three key findings. Uh, the first one is that the decision makers have to be close to the innovation. So in situations where you have a big company and the CEO or the corporate strategy staff are getting heavily involved in innovation, revenue falls off. In other words, you want to have the people uh, involved in innovation directly involved making decisions. And companies that do that average about 80% more revenue from new products. The second major finding is over the uh, idea of stage gates or decision points along the way where you decide whether or not a product should move forward. Companies that have those and rigidly follow them, don't bypass them, average about 130% more revenue for new products. Now, it's very important to have the right number. You don't want too many or too few. This is a Goldilocks situation. If you have too few, if you don't have any, companies underperform there. If companies that have too many, they also underperform. Two to three is actually the right number you should have. Many companies have many more. And then lastly, debriefs or a formal structured learning process. That's absolutely key to innovation. Companies that have that average about 100% more revenue for new products. Companies that have a third-party facilitator come in average about another 100%, so now 200%. And companies that record what they learn in a knowledge management system, that adds another 100%. So we're up to 300%. So that has a huge impact. Debriefs and properly handling those has the biggest impact on innovation. What is it about debriefs that makes them so valuable? Is it knowing that you're going to be measured against something psychologically? Well, I think that's definitely a part of it. Um, in innovation, people oftentimes ask, oh, what's the relationship between learning and innovation? And I don't think there is any difference. I think learning and innovation are the same thing. 
And what debriefs do is it makes it a structured way of capturing that learning, makes it more formal, uh, and makes sure those learnings are understood and documented. You know, you guys just reading about the iPhone, and they went through 50 different versions of the foot of the button on the iPhone. So the idea of trying and learning and trying again is actually the heart of innovation. So that's what debrief does. Okay, great. And you mentioned stage gates in your first answer and having two to three stage gates. What are some of the questions that you might ask at those stage gates to figure out whether or not something is a go or a no-go? Well, it depends what point you are in the process. So if you're just coming out of, you have a bunch of ideas you need to select uh, one or two to move forward with, uh, then you're going to be looking at more general questions about ease versus impact because you don't have a lot of knowledge at that point. Uh, at a point where you're in prototype, whether it's a software prototype or a physical prototype or a physical object, you're asking questions more around uh, cost, uh, manufacturability, production issues. And then if you're uh, at the late stage, your third stage gate, which you're approaching launch or getting ready to invest uh, substantial dollars to make the launch, now you're really asking primarily financial and economic questions. Okay, got it. So uh, going back to debriefs, what would a successful debrief look like? You know, who's in the room to discuss? Uh, can you paint a picture of that for us? Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, make sure you have a quiet room and turn off all your cell phones. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really want to be focused on the learning. Sure. Uh, but the most important thing is have a cross-functional group of people in there. You ideally want vendors in there. You want uh, clients, customers. You want that kind of input or having that fed in in some sort of structured way. And then everybody who is involved with it, people in marketing, technology, um, you know, the product side of it, whoever is involved in the process, innovation is cross-functional. They should all be there. And the agenda should work, uh, should have three different elements to it. The first element is what worked and what didn't work. It sounds sort of obvious, but there's an important wrinkle in this is that even when something succeeds, oftentimes there's things that went well, but there's also things that didn't go well. And you want to get the, the what didn't go well on a success out on the table. Likewise, when something fails, a lot of times there's things that actually worked and you want to get that out on, out on the table. Second of all, you want to get the metrics, right? It could be something like percent of distribution within 60 days for doing a physical product. It could be user um, you know, ratings uh, after they've gotten their software and their new functionality. It could be how much they're using the new reporting or whatever the new functionality is being delivered. Very important to get those metrics out on the table. And then lastly, you want to come up with a team and personal action plans about what you're going to do differently going forward. What are you committing to do for the next innovation that you're going to do differently? So question for you, you recently wrote in the New York, in the New York Times uh, about a very interesting topic, age and innovation. And it sounds like you got an outpouring of responses based on that piece. So in this area of, te in this era of tech media darlings like Mark Zuckerberg, Aaron Levy of Box, David Karp of Tumblr, now Yahoo, there tends to be an assumption that innovation is going to come from the, you know, from the young demographic, from the wonderkins. But in reality, that's not always the case. So can you, share, can you share some of the findings that you discuss in that New York Times article as they relate to age and innovation? Right. It's what well, it is the feel-good article for anybody over the age of 50 out there. So, <laughs> uh, well, yes, I've got, gotten a very, very strong response over it, both from younger people and from uh, older people. It just, it's an article that resonates with just about everybody. Uh, what we found was this is actually based on research that uh, Ben Jones at Northwestern University did. The research he did uh, demonstrated that the average age of a Nobel Prize winner or uh, an inventor has risen by about eight years over the last hundred years. When I was looking at that material, what I also saw in it was that 
um, was this notion of innovation potential by age. And it turned out that you, your peak innovation period is around the age 40. Uh, at age 25, your actually innovation potential is quite low. I mean, there's going to be exce exceptions like Zuckerberg, but generally speaking, 25-year-olds don't come up with a lot of innovations, a lot of new inventions. And then at the age of uh, 55, 65, people are still very, very productive. In fact, a 55-year-old has seven times the innovation potential of a 25-year-old. Even a 65-year-old has three times the innovation potential. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's an, an interesting piece from Ben Jones. I downloaded it, printed it out, and I could basically understand the charts in the back, and that was about it. He's <laughs> a good writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so if, if you're a statistician, love formulas, definitely check it out. Ben Jones at Northwestern uh, at Kellogg. Uh, so question for you. We're in an era where seemingly everyone is talking about and looking to drive top-line revenue growth. And one obvious way to do that is to continually add more products to the top line and to see what sticks. But what some of your research has shown is that this approach of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks can do more harm than good. Why is that? Well, if you look at uh, strong brands, the leaders of certain categories, they are very deliberate in how they roll out new products and new functionality. You look at LinkedIn, they are not throwing a lot of functionality out there. It's a very deliberate add-on to their core, core uh, functions. Uh, if you look at Tide, you know, you'll see very, very consistent, very deliberate innovation and major innovation every five or so years. Apple, obviously, they aren't throwing a lot of products in the marketplace. They're very deliberate about that. So as an example, as case studies, it's very clear that many leaders uh, are take a very deliberate approach to innovation. Second of all, based on our data, we actually saw that companies that focus their innovation on their products and brands that are doing well generate significantly more revenue than uh, companies that spread their innovation efforts across all their products and brands. So we can see the focusing impact there too. So those are a couple ways that we can see that um, innovation focusing is very important. There also is one other perspective here, which is looking at ideas over time. The first handheld mobile phone was described in 1906 in an article in the LA Herald. And the person who described it claimed they had a partially working prototype. As, but as we all know, the first handheld mobile phones didn't come out until the 70s. And in fact, it became practical in terms of cost and size until really the early 90s. So the, the lesson there is that ideas, many ideas are already out there. It's very hard to come up with a new one. So rather than throwing a lot of ideas out there, focusing a lot, find the ones that are most important, most impactful, and focus on those. Okay, got it. So in one of your Forbes articles, you mentioned a CEO that you've worked with lamenting his company's low innovation success rate. And innovation can be kind of nebulous, and I imagine that measuring it is something that many companies struggle with. If you were looking to create a quote-unquote formula for innovation success rate, what metrics or factors would you start with? Well, it varies depending upon industry. So some industries like automotive or consumer packaged goods, uh, the metrics are actually pretty easy to come up with. You can look, you can get percent of revenue from new products, you can compare across companies, and as a result, you can have a pretty good idea of where you stand, how you rank, and what would be the impact of improving your innovation rates. When you move outside of those industries, though, it becomes much more problematic because that data is not readily available. In those cases, it becomes much more of an internal uh, metrics, doing internal com relative comparisons. For example, looking at the mix of revenue across incremental to breakthrough innovation, understanding whether that mix is correct, looking at innovation rates across divisions, uh, looking at uh, the stage your product is in and determining uh, what's the right type and level of innovation in order to keep it on whichever path you want to keep it on growing, stable, or even uh, declining. 
Okay, and you mentioned the the right balance of incremental versus breakthrough innovation. Is there a, a target you know ratio to shoot for between those two? Well, it varies. Uh, it varies again across industries. Mm -hmm. If you're seeing an industry where uh, there tends to be a lot of uh, technological change or a lot of change going on, uh, then your numbers should skew much more towards breakthrough. Uh, another little wrinkle in this is there's no definitions what's incremental to breakthrough, uh, so that becomes another challenge in trying to come up with those metrics. Okay, sure. So you at Rivia work with companies in a variety of industries: automotive, consumer packaged goods, uh, yeah, healthcare, and, and many more. Are there common pitfalls that you see for clients that are trying to drive their innovation efforts in, in each industry? Yeah, uh, absolutely. The, the most common pitfalls across industries are they have too many ideas. They aren't doing a good job focusing. Uh, they're not spending enough time on a few ideas, refining them over and over again. So again, going back to the Apple example, 50 iterations of a button. Uh, Edison was very, very famous uh, for spending th doing thousands of experiments until he got a product right. And we just don't see enough of that uh, in industry today, not that same sort of focus and determination to get it right. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, not learning from mistakes. You know, oftentimes when I first go to a client, I say, if you don't do anything else, start learning from your mistakes, capture that information. And, and what are some ways that you recommend if, if you want to test uh, if you if you're Apple and you want to and you want to figure out which of the 50 different variations variations of the button is actually the right one, do you do prototyping? You do uh, market research. You do consumer surveys. W what are ways that you can recommend companies approach that? Well, you know, I hate to, to take this out again, but of saying it depends. Sure. Uh, it, 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 that's a very, very complex question. Uh, there certainly are many examples. Um, Jobs, for one, was famous for not wanting to rely upon consumer research for executing his vision. And then there's other examples, such as the problems JCPenney had, where when they tried to redo their format, it would have been wise for them have done some prototyping and done some consumer testing beyond it. Uh, so it really depends upon what you're trying to do. In situations where you're uh, getting well ahead of what's in the marketplace already, so you're coming up with something that is, doesn't have a very close uh, cousin in the marketplace, mm -hmm. you exhaust the data, what we, what we say you exhaust the data very, very quickly. You can't rely upon consumer insights because it's hard for them to conceptualize what's being offered. Um, at the same time, if you're looking at something that's already in market, if you're more in the space of incremental innovation, then absolutely consumer research can be very, very valuable. Okay, got it. So uh, every company has a methodology that they walk clients through. How do you at Rivia take uh, new ideas or existing products and, and help companies uncover possibly innovative ideas that they haven't thought of? Well, what we focus on is what we call um, idea capture. So rather than putting the emphasis on ideation, coming up with new ideas, mm -hmm. we focus instead on understanding what's already out there and documenting it. It's very, very rare that you can come up with a new idea. In fact, our, our data on ideation shows that it has very, very little impact on overall percent of revenue for new products. It certainly could be very effective. There's lots of examples of it, but overall, it tends to be very ineffective in terms of driving new ideas. So we focus on capturing ideas that are out there and refining them and picking out one or two using a variety of metrics and variety of different lenses, core competencies, uh, if it's appropriate customer input, business strategy, to figure out one or two that we really need to get behind to move forward. A lot of what we do is help clients uh, have confidence in themselves to focus on one or two, three, one or two ideas and uh, make them happen. Okay, great. So you're a, you're a relatively prolific writer. Uh, 
yeah, sometimes I am. It, it depends. You know, it depends on what uh, how how I'm feeling and and whether the uh, whether my brain is moving or not. <laughs> uh, well, you know, based on the the articles that I was able to find doing research, it, it moves at a pretty good clip a decent amount of the time. Um, are, are there articles that you're working on now, or topics that you that you find interesting that we can that we can expect to see on the editorial calendars of the New York Times or Fast Company or anywhere else soon? Well, we're in the process of putting together a white paper, which is looking at uh, the virtual clones that are being developed and how that platform will extend and the profound implication it has business. Uh, the idea of being a virtual clone is somebody who is um, uh, your twin, who is physiologically identical to you. There's a big effort going on in uh, Europe. Uh, funded by uh, the European governments uh, to develop these physiological twins of you, of you. So you'll have somebody who's basically the mirror of you, and that has some uh, pretty profound implications for how we engage uh, people going forward and how they'll engage with the Internet of Things and uh, and each other. Man, that uh, that's pretty amazing. I, I would love to have a few more of me most days. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, it also addresses the issue of, of how we manage this proliferation uh, and overwhelming amount of input we're having uh, today due to technology. I was just uh, reading the other day that there's an expectation that this year there'll be 69 trillion emails sent, 27 per day per person on for everyone on the face of the earth, and that simply isn't sustainable. Yeah, man, that is wild. Um so as you just mentioned, Tom, technology has become a huge part of our lives. 69 trillion emails sent over the course of the year. What are common mistakes that you see in the technology realm in driving innovation? Well, there's, uh, there's two. Uh, first of all, it's thinking too small about innovation. Uh, so for example, uh, financial services is very front and center for me because I've had a couple of these conversations recently. But when I talk to them about their digital strategy going forward, it's very small. It's about how they engage in apps, social media. It's very fragmented, science IT people, marketing people. It does, it's not very coherent, and it doesn't look very far forward. And as a result, they really aren't thinking about how they're going to be the center of people's financial lives in five to ten years as these virtual entities, uh, as our virtual selves start to emerge. In other words, are they really going to be an ingredient and somebody else is going to be the center of their financial lives or are they going to be the center of our financial lives? And I don't see uh, uh, financial services, IT organizations thinking that way, or if they are, I don't see them coming up with uh, steps for how they're going to get there. Uh, the second most common problem I see is uh, not having independent validation or system test teams checking the design, checking uh, uh, the systems in, uh, in, uh, when they're in system tests before they go into production or even post-production. What I mean by independent teams are people who are not part of uh, the development effort who are reporting independently to the CIO or to the CFO and reporting what's going on and trying to find problems, working with the team but also working independently. I've been in situations of big systems are going completely sideways and simply implementing something like that sorts out the problems because it creates an independent objective source of information for everyone. So you mentioned financial services companies. Are, are those companies that you talk to, do services like Venmo and PayPal and Square come up? Because there are tons of kind of mobile competitors, basically, that have, that have popped up in the past couple of years that have gotten wildly popular. Well, yeah, that's that's 
part of the issue. Everybody's looking upon this in a very fragmented way. So to your point, there's lots of competitors coming up. There's threats to their business model, such as through peer-to-peer -peer lending. Uh, there's new ways of delivering functionality to uh, the customer. But what, again, what's happening is it's a very fragmented conversation. No one's standing back and saying, okay, how is this all going to come together? How is this fragmentation going to be resolved? We can see this in every industry over time. You're, we're in a phase right now that's very fragmented. Uh, and what happens over time is this fragmentation goes away and it consolidates. And for big financial services organizations, I'm not seeing them have clear strategies for when it consolidates that they're going to be at the center. And do you see Bitcoin getting to the point where it's ever, you know, it's it's obviously huge already, but and, and an NBA team is accepting Bitcoin. But do you see that becoming a part of, of our everyday lives? Well, I, it's hard to say I, that, because that involves public policy, involves currencies, it involves corporate policy. There's just so many moving parts of that one. It's, it's pretty hard to, to see where that's all going to go. It's exciting. It's interesting. Uh, but uh, money is a funny thing with people, and, uh, and no one's going to uh, embrace uh, any kind of new currency quickly unless there's tremendous benefits by doing so. And that value equation for Bitcoin uh, doesn't seem uh, very high right now. Okay, sure. So we talked a little bit earlier, Tom, about age and innovation and the notion that the best innovators are not always the youngest. You also wrote a piece for the New York Times recently on millennials and how they uh, are they are poised to make uh, significant contributions in the innovation space. So what's what's the dichotomy, I guess, between those two findings or thoughts? Well, there's two things going on here. First of all, with millennials, uh, they've grown up with technology in a way that uh, certainly I did not, and they know how to interact with that technology, leverage it, that creates very, very open conversations. And it's because of that openness and the ability to build ideas very quickly, they're in a position to turbocharge innovation. They have the tools, they have the desire, they have the ability. And I think coming from millennials, as they get older and older, as they now are starting to enter their 30s and 40s, we're going to see them have a profound positive impact on innovation. We also need the older people around to uh, to help make it real, to help help it be help it be implemented, to help refine those ideas. So it's not either or, and that's a, a problem I see commonly is that we look upon our uh, the people in an organization and not appreciate this, the the importance of the mix of having the older people around to uh, to have the experience, the benefits, to understand how to make things happen, combining and leveraging millennials fully with the new uh, approaches, their new thinking, and the way they go about business and bringing the two together. Bringing the two together will be a very, very powerful combination, and that has to be sorted out. Okay, great. And you, you mentioned totally shifting gears, but you mentioned uh, human clones essentially earlier. I, 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 tend, I tend to like to ask if anybody has industries or technologies that they see that they think are maybe flying beneath the radar and will become uh, and will change society in the future. So beyond that, you have 3D printing, Internet of Things, any, any of those that maybe aren't flying beneath the radar but that really capture your attention? Well, I think the Internet of Things is an interesting point because I think uh, it's not a very helpful way of looking at the world and where it's going. It's very much from a device manufacturer standpoint. And the last thing I checked, I'm not a thing and you're not a thing. Right. So it's not the Internet of Things. Okay, That whole, that whole idea is, is I think, uh, unhelpful. Uh, what I think is much more important here is, is thinking through the Internet of People which sounds a bit like a cliche, but there's a lot happening in that space, a lot of technology, and that's going to that's gonna change the balance here from the Internet of Things to the Internet of People. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah, there's a, a great book that um, 
Gary Steingart wrote called a super sad true love story, and it's supposed to it's kind of allegory. It's kind of 1984-ish, but uh, everybody walks around in the book with what's called an apparatchik, which is basically like a smartphone that they wear around their necks. And you know, if you stop and think about it, we're really not too far. We're really at that point already. I mean, from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to bed at night, if my phone is not in my hand, it's in my pocket or attached to my body somewhere. So we we kind of are becoming the internet of people or if we're not there already. Right. Well, I mean, Google Glasses will have the device wrapped around our head. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, gosh, with the wearables and ingestibles, uh, you know, I mean, who, who knows where it's all going, but very, very exciting times. You know, it is a very, very exciting time. If you look at the technology space, you see leaps forward occurring because of integration, uh, expanded functionality, or increased performance. So integration would be, the classic example would be the IBM 360, uh, which brought together a bunch of technologies, which was a wild success starting in the 1960s. More recently, the iPhone, you know, bring together a lot of different functionality, huge success. We see functionality improvements, uh, the whole progression of chips over many years, uh, the drag improvements of performance in that area, the performance improvements, uh, and then functionality, uh, where you are expanding and adding functionality to products uh, in ways that uh, were hard to imagine uh, that we would have available to them years ago, such as GPS. Anyway, when you start looking at these things combining in different ways, that's where you get to breakthrough innovation, and all those forces are in play right now. And so that's why we're going to see some big, very positive changes emerging over the next five to ten years. Very nice. So, is there anything that that you're working on now that you're very excited about that you can that you can share? And I'm sure a lot of the stuff that you do is governed by strict NDAs. But but anything that you can talk about? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> just right. I said, uh, uh, you know, I, I will have we'll have this white paper coming out about uh, the virtual self, yep. and uh, I think will be an interesting uh, read for a lot of people in this audience. Okay, great, good deal. Uh, well, Tom Egan, thanks very much for joining us today. This is our first video cast. We are recording this over Skype as well, uh, at Tom's request, and happy to acquiesce and. Uh, and try to innovate a little bit ourselves. So we will have video of this available uh, along with the usual audio. Tom, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Will. All right, so once again, everyone, Tom Agan, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Rivia, an innovation and brand consultancy that helps organizations think bigger, be bolder, and deliver better results. Their home on the web is rivia.com. You can find them on Twitter at, at Rivia Team. That's at R-I-V-I-A-T-E-A-M. And keep an eye out for Tom Egan's writing in the New York Times, Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, and everywhere else we mentioned before. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're happy to have Jeffrey Phillips of Ovo Innovation on the podcast to talk about uncovering high-capacity innovators within your organization. We'll be looking at common traits of the most successful innovators, common missteps companies make in forming innovation teams, and the benefits of picking the right innovators in your organization. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.